0: Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I have on the line Carl Linskoog who is, uh, although he wants to be clear, and I think it's fair to say that he is not a uh, professor emeritus of Haitian history, uh, he has done some significant research on the history of Haiti. And uh, I think that what he has to say is very important to the untold story of the current catastrophe that is occur- has occurred this week and is continuing to occur as it's snowballing into a humanitarian crisis from... The, uh, the origins. Now, I think it's very important whenever you look at a particular catastrophe in the world, the roots of it tend to go very deep and you won't get the roots of the story, whether it's Somali pirates or uh, 9-11 or the Rwandan genocide, you don't get to see the roots of the story. And so I like to... Uh, find people who have some expertise in the field and get them to give uh, a richer and deeper background. You really can't understand the world by looking at the surface of things. It's like trying to figure out the layout of a house by looking at the paint on the outside. So I thank you so much for taking the time, Carl. And I thought that... um, the way that you explicated what was beneath the tip of the iceberg that is occurring in Haiti this week was very interesting, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the um, uh, the agricultural policies and the social engineering policies and the general foreign policy disasters that have been exercised by the uh, U.S. government uh, that have helped contribute to this uh, the, the, the scale and depth of the catastrophe.
1: Yes, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely be happy to and thanks for having me on. Um, Well, the thing that I've been learning about most recently in my research, which focuses more on Haitian immigration and Haitians in the United States, um, but uh, I also, of course, in my research wanted to look at um, what was the beginning part in Haiti was driving people to migrate internally, but also then externally. And what I found um, in part is that uh, some of the policies that were American led um, but um, especially through the United States Agency for International Development um, also working with the IMF and the World Bank um, really started happening uh, after Jean-claude baby doc duvalier came into power and um, what they tried to do with um, along with baby doc was to sort of transform the structure of the Haitian economy. Uh, This started in the early 70s and went through the 80s and in many ways continued afterwards. Um, But what they wanted to do was try to um, replace a largely sort of subsistent agricultural economy with an export-oriented manufacturing economy. And so the way they did this, um, they said, Haiti, you have... um, a comparative advantage, which is the language that the IMF and the World Bank often use. You have a comparative advantage that you can offer to the world economy, and your comparative advantage is cheap labor. Your poverty means that that's the thing that you have to offer to the world. And as a result, the thing that you should do is transform your economy, make your cities into places that house assembly industry, which relies on um, labor-intensive, cheap labor. And um, that's going to be your key to economic development. And so the USAID and IMF um, sort of required Haiti to um, sort of start doing that and transform the economy along those lines. And at the same time, what they did is they um, worked with agro-processing and large agricultural producers in the countryside um, to also transform the agricultural product into export-oriented product. Well, this and I'm sorry that, to, uh,
0: to interrupt, but I just I just wanted yeah. to point out um, to to the listeners that uh, for all of the talk that you hear from international agencies uh, around uh, uh, democracy and uh, consultation with uh, the indigenous people and so on, all of this radical transformation of the uh, Haitian economy was neither driven by innate market forces. In other words, there was not a, a huge demand for goods and services that could be produced by the local Haitians, and neither was it driven by any kind of democratic process because of course Papa Doc who ruled from the 50s to the early 70s was a dictator and his son Baby Doc, who I think was overthrown in 86 was also a dictator. So this is all being imposed by central planners in the true communist model from the outside. It is not driven by market forces. It is certainly not driven by any kind of democratic process and I think that's really important to remember that this is all inflicted upon the indigenous population it is not driven by any uh, uh, any participatory democracy or market forces is that is that fair to say
1: that's absolutely right I think that's definitely fair to say Um, and it's an important point um, to know that this wasn't happening naturally or indeed um, at the lead of the Haitian people themselves I think that's right and indeed, you can see how the changes that these planning and these um, these plans resulted in uh, also weren't in the interest or to the benefit of the Haitian people. You had a huge uh, migration of Haitian peasants who could no longer survive in the countryside to the cities. Um, there, of course, they were promised by USAID and the IMF and Inter-American Development Bank that there would be manufacturing jobs waiting for them, but of course, there were far too few and the wages, even for those people who could find jobs, were great enough for them to really survive in the cities. Um, and so it just led to this deeply entrenched poverty and overpopulation in and around Port-au-Prince and some of the other urban areas that we found on the day the earthquake happened. And um, in some of the writing and speaking I've been doing, I wanted to make clear that um, that was what happened before the earthquake hit and greatly magnified the devastating impact that the earthquake had
0: right so i think you're talking about a sort of a a pull economy uh which is that people are promised these um uh, generous wages or at least wages better than what subsistence farming can provide which of course the more you draw people into uh, a wage situation the greater demand there is for jobs and therefore the lower the wages will become and uh, i think the question many people would then ask is like well if the jobs weren't available uh, in the um, in the urban manufacturing areas why did they leave the subsistent farms uh, and uh, I think that your answer to that is is very very important and very well why don't why not just go back to the farm then if you don't have uh, a job and why why did you why do why would you end up living in a slum
1: right well that's that's a good question and um, and the final destination wasn't always to stay in the slum areas of Bel-Air or Cité Soleil outside of Port-au-Prince or in Port-au-Prince, Some, for many, if they could get out of the country, it was to migrate externally to go abroad to the U.S. or elsewhere. Um, so that wasn't always the final destination, but it's a good question. Why, why did people keep coming into Port-au-Prince if, if there weren't enough jobs or if the wages weren't high enough? Well, the answer, I think, to that is, because they couldn't survive in the countryside. They might have been able to scrape together uh, existence in the city through an informal economy, selling things on the street, or doing odd jobs, or all the different aspects of the informal economy. But the reason they couldn't survive in the countryside was, first of all, they couldn't continue to compete with the um, large agricultural producers that were setting up shop with American and international aid. they also couldn't compete with um, a surplus agricultural products that were being dumped by the United States on the country of Haiti, and so when you have so many um, tons of American rice coming in, while the the, um, the agricultural, the small-scale agriculture in Haiti couldn't survive anymore, and so that was the reason. And so they might have had to make a bad choice between trying to scrape by in the city or the countryside, but many decided that it just wasn't feasible to stay in the countryside as a result of this competition, both with foreign imports and also with large and cultural producers that started in this time.
0: Right. So again, here we have you know, anti-democratic and anti-market forces at work, which I think is really, really, really important for people to to understand the degree to which uh, this latest earthquake is uh, simply uh, the last in a whole series of domino exploitations of the indigenous population. Uh, as you said, the agricultural Um, companies or corporations that were set up uh, I think you said they were they were subsidized Uh, can you can you talk about ways in which they were subsidized because most people who are native to a particular climate and a particular agricultural scenario can very easily compete with foreigners who come in who are going to make all the mistakes that that people coming new to a complex uh, system like agriculture are going to make but how is it that the agricultural uh, organizations that were set up were were subsidized from the outside that 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 led them to be so uh, able to uh, blow these people out of the water in terms of competition?
1: Right. Okay. That's a good question. Um, A lot of the large-scale production, whether you're talking about agriculture or manufacturing, um, requires a lot of initial investment, but once you have that initial investment, then they can afford often to be much more efficient and to produce on a scale that uh, is much more, um, produces a much larger product than the small scale producers can do. And that initial investment, that assistance they got to set up these large agro processing um, facilities and things like that um, was assistance they got from International Aid. USAID and IMF decided that um, TD not only was going to export manufactured items, but that they should also be selling what they can produce agriculturally for the international market. And so they got that aid from um, the U.S. and the IMF and World Bank, and that initial investment then allowed them to set up these large agro-processing facilities, um, after which the small-scale local farming wasn't able to compete as well. And then when you add uh, into the equation, surplus exports, which are done to basically benefit are exported from the United States to benefit the American farmers, um, when that's also being dumped on uh, the local. Producers in Haiti—that uh, that made it even harder because that drove down the prices they could get for their products.
0: Right, and again, I just want to make sure that that's clear to to the listeners. Uh, economically, if um, uh, if, if Carl and I are competing, and Carl is an indigenous, even small small time farmer, and uh, I come in and have to spend fifty million dollars setting up some sort of you know monstrously mechanized agricultural business, then whenever I sell my products, I have to add on the price that I need to pay for my $50 million. So I borrow $50 million to set up all of these, these factory farms, then everything that I sell has to have an additional price, which Carl doesn't have to tack onto his products in order to pay for the mechanization. And that is a sort of free market level playing field. But if I get the $50 million for free or you know some sort of uh, a subsidized loan, then the amount that I have to tack on is, is much less than it would be under the free market, which means that it is a completely unfair competitive uh, uh, situation and uh, the, the, the market forces don't get a chance to even things out, which I think ends up with people being driven Uh, driven off the land. And you might say, well, why don't the small farmers get together and combine into large farms, which would be the natural uh, response? I I assume that the Haitians are as economically self-interested and as intelligent and as creative and as entrepreneurial as everybody else on the planet. But of course, uh, getting together to borrow the $50 million, nobody's going to lend the $50 million to you to compete with the agribusiness that's been subsidized because the agribusiness is subsidized. So they know that you can't compete. Uh, And that's, Mm -hmm. again, what drives people off the land. And as the agribusiness businesses start to do well they can then buy out more land which people are desperate to sell because they can't compete they end up in the cities uh, again I'm, I'm sort of extrapolating economically but mm-hmm. does that seem to fit with the patterns that you've been seeing
1: yeah i think that um the aid that international agencies gave to these large um export-oriented agricultural productions definitely gave them an unfair advantage over the small-scale producers, so I would definitely agree with that. And there have been attempts, and there continue to be attempts, um, to set up sort of peasant cooperatives and that sort of thing, but again, to, to reach and to the scale of these large export-oriented agricultural um, um, things, they would have to be... Enormous, and also uh, another thing is they might not necessarily be interested in being export-oriented agricultural production. Um, they might be interested in growing food for local production and local um, consumption. And so that's another thing that that uh, factors in when they when peasant cooperatives uh, consider how they want to operate. I,
0: and I think that there is also uh, a concern uh, on the part of any kind of dictatorship that when. Uh, the, the peasants so to speak begin to combine into larger entities that that also may represent a political threat uh, much like large-scale unionization and so there's often uh, a, a drive on the part of the dictators to break up uh, any kind of combination on the part of the peasants because as they become uh, more um, unified and as they start to develop more of an economic interest uh, in in less government power which of course would be more for the free market that does I think tend to represent a threat and quite often the um, The military dictatorships can act against that kind of combination on the part of the peasants.
1: I think that's right. I think you can't um, consider how people would respond or governments would respond to this without looking at the political side of it. So I think you're right about that.
0: Now, I think uh, one of the things that is not um, very conscious to, to people in America, because it's just not reported on by the mainstream media... Is the degree to which um, third world poverty, and I think it's fair to class class Asia in that category, third world poverty is is hugely negatively affected by the amount of agricultural dumping that occurs. And this is unbelievable hypocrisy on the part of the American special interest groups, of course, because the moment that China is able to undersell some TV manufacturer, he cries dumping and goes to Congress to get taxes and tariffs laid, laid upon the importing goods. But I don't think people understand the degree to which third world agriculture has been decimated by the dumping of heavily subsidized or even free um uh, agricultural products on these markets, which just uh, creates a huge dependency on the foreign government, creates an enormous class of underutilized or unemployed people, destroys local agricultural traditions, which then uh, has problems because then you, you don't get the land irrigated, which means that it re- sometimes reverts back to um, to desert and so on. I, I think that it's a huge silent cataclysm that is occurring around the world that I don't think people are very aware of. And I was wondering if you could touch on how this may have affected things in Haiti.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think this has affected developing countries around the world, um, including Haiti, many also neighbors in the Caribbean. There's a very good documentary about how this has happened in Jamaica. I believe it's called Life and Debt. Um, I might be wrong about that, but but it it exactly shows um, what you're describing. And um, yeah, I mean, this... People, it's important for people to understand that this is a, a huge sort of exception to what we claim is, is our standard policy of free markets and um, open exchange. And what's supposed to be the beautiful thing about globalization is that things are exchanged freely and there's no unfair competition imposed by any big organization. But then we have um, this very unfair um, thing of where powerful countries that are able to produce a lot of agricultural products are basically giving um, an advantage to their agricultural producers in their country um, by saying, okay, if you have this much extra corn, this much extra wheat, this much extra rice, um, we'll do you a favor and we're going to go and dump it over here so that your prices aren't driven down by that surplus product. Um, and you're absolutely right. In countries like Haiti, um, where local producers, small-scale agricultural producers in the countryside are already not necessarily able to compete as well as with large-scale producers, Um, then when you have this added disadvantage for them of tons and tons of exported products coming in from other countries and dumped on them, there's, there's really no way they can compete, and that's why we saw this exodus to the cities and then that's part of the reason there was this international exodus by haitians um in the 70s 80s and that's not the only part of course it's political as well um but that's that's part of the story here
0: right so what 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 then essentially has happened if i understand it correctly is you have had uh, basically, people herded, I mean, they might as well have been herded directly by whips and cattle prods, uh, kicked off their land through through aggressive statist policies, um, uh, herded into uh, these, these shanty towns uh, and uh, with extreme poverty. And of course, what this means is that then when an earthquake hits, uh, people are really jammed uh, jammed together uh, and, and they're sort of, you know, stacked up like cordwood. And there's this real, real, uh, all, this awful situation where the earthquake is then basically uh, shaking up a sardine can uh, or, you know, a can of um, or a subway car full of really overcrowded travelers. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the death toll has been so immense. That really is, it is a stacked up shanty town that's being shaken from below.
1: That's absolutely right. And, and um, I was distressed that we weren't, and we continue to not hear very much about that in the media coverage of, the effect of this devastating earthquake. Um, Some people are familiar with the favelas on the hillsides in the cities in um, Brazil, and they have things almost exactly like that in and around Port-au-Prince. People cram together with very sort of minimal housing um, and very little security. So when you have a huge magnitude earthquake like this, um, the density as a result of this these structural changes that have been happening for the last 20, 30 years, the density then is going to ensure that the impact is going to be much, much worse than it would have been.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's really important for people to, to remember and to take this skeptical approach when they hear these kinds of news items. Uh, this is, of course, not the first earthquake that's hit Haiti. And this is a culture that has lived with earthquakes for thousands and thousands of years. And so when a culture goes through this kind of convulsion where you have a huge and cataclysmic death toll from a, a natural disaster that has occurred many times before. I think it's really important to look at the factors that have changed. Why have people been prevented from? Uh, creating abodes that are secure from this kind of stuff. And it's not not to say that there would be no death toll if they were free, but the death toll would have been much, much less had they not been uh, herded virtually at gunpoint and through financial extremity and economic extremity uh, into this packed, crowded uh, living conditions that they know very well how to deal with earthquakes to the best of their ability, having lived with them far longer than, than, of course, anybody from the outside. And I think it's really important for people to say, well, why is the death toll so high, rather than looking at it as a natural disaster? The only thing that's natural about the disaster is the earthquake. Everything else that is contributing to the high, uh, high death toll is exceedingly unnatural. Is that is that a fair statement?
1: Yes, I think so. Um, it took, I think there's been some things, some articles out that have called it an unnatural disaster. Um, and I think that's exactly right. And I think um, to look at the roots of this and to look at how man-made a lot of this is, is to is is the correct way to approach it i agree with you on
0: that and i the, la- the last thing i'll say and i'm certainly happy to hear more that uh if there's more that you want to talk about but i I think uh, and again you're the you're, you're i know that you don't want me to call you an expert which is perfectly fair but you're much more of an expert than i am uh that the, one of the huge issues that occurs when a culture is no lo- the political structure of a culture is no longer aligned to at least to some degree satisfying the um uh, the citizens uh, because normally a political culture even a dictatorial culture has uh, you know gets gets the majority of its resources through taxation or other means the majority of its resources come from its citizens which means the citizens have to have at least some of their needs met but i think it's important mm-hmm. for people to realize that when foreign aid uh, organizations come in whether they're you know public or semi public uh, usaid the imf and other kinds of international aid uh, organizations. When these companies come in and begin to pump money and resources into the local government, the local government shifts its priorities away from the satisfaction of at least some of the local population's needs and becomes almost completely politically aligned to the source of its revenue. And since the source of its revenue is no longer the people, but these international aid organizations, the voice of the people becomes almost completely lost uh, in that, in that uh, alteration. And I think that's another one of the tragedies that is occurring.
1: Right. I think that's, that's true. That's, that's part of this story um, from the history of Haiti in the 70s and 80s. I would argue that the voice of the people shined through brilliantly in 1990 when they elected Jean-Bertrand Aristide, and um, that was sort of a political upset for Uh, looking at Haiti's history, and also was not very welcome from the perspective of these international agencies and a lot of Haiti's international neighbors. Um, Aristide proposed to do a lot of things that were in the interest and reflected the interest of the Haitian people, including raising the minimum wage, doing things that would have been um, advantageous for bettering the Haitian people. But of course, he was put out in a coup in 1991. Um, and might I add that the United States was very involved in supporting Aristide's domestic opposition. Um, but then, before he was placed back into power, the Clinton administration and um, other international players um, basically required Aristide to agree to. Drop a lot of his initial vision for how he would like to transform Haiti in the interest of Haitians uh, and uh, accept some of the neoliberal plans that had been imposed before, of the sort that we're talking about export oriented production, um, that sort of thing. And so there was a chance, uh, and there still continues to be the chance, but there was a chance in the 90s for the voice of the Haitian people to come through and sort of of, take a step away from this externally imposed. Um, neoliberalism, and um, and that was squelched with the toppling of Aristide and then the conditions put on his return. So
0: and, I think uh, that's another
1: important part of this history.
0: Right, and when you say the toppling of Aristide, and he was in own, uh, power for less than two years, the toppling of Aristide, uh, was that uh, uh, obviously that was not something that was generated from within the indigenous population because they'd already voted for their guy, so what was the backing behind that?
1: Well, um, there were was a small group of Haitians who were interested in seeing Aristide go because he was proposing things that would benefit the Haitian masses. But you're right that um, the domestic opponents received a great amount of assistance from um, the United States working covertly and supporting um, something called FRAP, which was a sort of, um, um, you might call it, uh, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it was it was a, a major force that led to the coup and a lot of the terror after the coup. Um, but yes, uh, the huge majority of the Haitians voted for Aristide after um, he was put out of office. They continued to call for Aristide's return, um, and and you're right that this was very much um, not in the interest of the Haitian people and aided by international interests including the united states that were um, threatened by what aristide was proposing and what he represented for the country
0: in the world so carl if i understand this correctly you're saying that and i believe that this is completely unique in u.s foreign policy that the u.s actually uh, armed and supported anti-democratic forces i can't think of any other place where that's occurred except oh no wait Every other single place that the U.S. has had an interest, uh, so I guess it's not that unusual after all. Uh, the the last question that I'd can... like to ask you, if you don't mind, is I'm always try I always try to figure out why it is that people are pursuing the courses that they're pursuing. And of course, when when you say, well, not you, but when you, as a central planner, right, as as somebody who's you know mucking about in somebody else's uh, market and culture with guns and and money. The, the surface story is, well, all we want to do is help them develop. All we want to do is is help them to develop into a more uh, forward-looking or modernized economy which from the United States is completely insane because that's not at all how the United States developed into a modern economy. There was no external mm. power that was funneling money and guns to the state of the uh, uh, to the United States government. It was uh, a sort of organic and spontaneous process, which was largely, I think, shielded uh, by a lack of government interference or a lack of coercive interference in the economy. So the exact opposite of how the U.S. economy developed is, is always imposed on these other countries. Do you think that this idea that people have that we can go in you know with with guns butter and money to to change all of these uh, uh, foreign cultures and of course it's not limited to haiti but everywhere that the us uh, and other imperialistic powers operates do you think that they go in with a genuine blind naive desire to quote help the people or do you think that the approach of quote helping the people is simply a cover story uh, for more nefarious and self-interested uh, uh, economic motives and Great. I know that this is pure speculation, so I'm, I'm not going right. to okay. put your, your, your reputation on the line for this. I'm just curious what you think about it.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very good question. I've thought about that a lot of times and talked to people about that. I I believe that there are some people within USAID and the World Bank and these organizations that help impose these policies that genuinely believe that it's in the interest of the Haitian people or the Indian people or um, Mexican people to have an export oriented economy and that and they believed when they were doing this that this was going to be the way to achieve economic development for Haitians. With that said, I think that the the where these policies are crafted um, and I would guess, it's again speculation, but that the huge majority of these people who figure out how to apply these policies to different countries like Haiti recognize that this, these are policies that reflect their own interests as powerful and wealthy people, and that these are policies that are going to benefit them far more than they're going to benefit the people that they are claiming they're going to benefit. So. Um, While I'm sure there are some people who believe this story um, about how this was intended to benefit the Haitian people or whatever, Um, I think that the people who are at the helm of stealing these policies and creating these policies recognize that it's in their interest to do so and therefore not in the interest of uh, Haitian peasants or Haitian city dwellers
0: right right i think that um just just my particular opinion is that i I sort of apply three standards to to answering this question and i I think that we're on the same page as far as that goes the first is are, are the central planners applying policies that are the exact opposite of what worked within their own culture and I think that, mm. to me, is a very, very important question. If they're, if the central planners are applying the exact opposite policies that worked within their own culture, then they have—I uh, don't think they have very good intentions—or or they've diluted mm-hmm. themselves to the point where it doesn't really matter. The second right. is, the, yeah, and, and this, the second is the degree to which the central planners are nimble and responsive to increasing bad news, right? So if if they say, well, we want this to help the Haitian people, uh, even though it's the opposite of what worked within their own culture. And then when they see that it's not working, they don't change their policies. Again, that to me signifies uh, some some nefarious motives. Uh, and um, and and the third, uh, which I think is is not not quite as uh, as important, is the degree to which they're honest about their failures after the fact. The degree to which they go on and say, "Listen, we really wanted to do this." The exact opposite happened. We didn't uh, change our policies, and now this disaster has occurred. And you should really blame us, not the Haitian people. And none of those standards have been uh, met in this case. So I think that it's uh, my 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 belief is that it's uh, the ideology is a cover story for more nefarious uh, economic uh, motives.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of that, and I think that. Um, The people at the World Bank or USAID or the IMF or whichever institution you want to look at, they're not stupid people, and they're sort of trained to do this sort of assessment of what seems to be working, what's not, what's going to be the outcome, did we achieve that outcome, and all they have to do is look at the impact these policies have had now for decades in Haiti, and they would be able, um, as smart, reasonable people, to learn that this that this isn't helping the Haitian people as they claimed it would. And if they were, as you say, if they were genuinely interested in benefiting the Haitian people, um, they would backtrack, transform these policies. But basically, the the general structure of this neoliberal um, policy that benefits um, external interests and in powerful people much more than it benefits of Haitians has, has continued. So um, that's why now... Haiti doesn't own its own flour industry, it doesn't own its own concrete industry. These are all things that have been privatized, and now when Haitians can't produce their own bread, they can't produce their own concrete anymore to rebuild their city and their country. Um, Well, that's, again, the product of the same thinking that, that I was talking about earlier, and it's not in the interest of Haitian people, so I agree with you on that.
0: Right. And uh, if there are people who uh, want to learn more about this, um, uh, if you could just uh, email me some links, I will put them on the video for people who want to dig into this further. But I think I think it's very important for us uh, as a culture to uh, to not be paternalistic towards the Haitians and say, oh, these poor people, uh, you know, they just they just uh, they didn't know how to plan for or deal with this kind of catastrophe. Uh, and and also to mistake the help that we're giving them as a culture as mere generosity um Uh, I think it's very, very important uh, that if we and again, I'm using the the collective very, very loosely here. But if we as a culture Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly uh, our um, our government has pursued policies that have been incredibly detrimental, then um, uh, it's very important that we recognize that uh, it's not the fault of the Haitian people. They really have been herded into a compound and then that compound has been set on fire. It's not because they don't know how to deal with these natural disasters. And I think that we might want to go beyond just calling ourselves generous for helping. And again, look at the root causes so that we can work to prevent these kind of catastrophes rather than just sort of rising up in a kind of after-the-fact generosity, which is much less helpful than trying to prevent this stuff in the future.
1: Yes, I absolutely agree. And I think that a better way to approach it rather than you know Amer- um, American or international benevolence or generosity is uh, what responsibility, looking at the history of Haiti and the United States or Haiti and the international community, what responsibility do we have not, you know, what aid are we going to benevolent, benevolently give to these poor people, but how have we contributed to this problem? And therefore, what is our responsibility in rebuilding and and helping the situation now as a result?
0: Yeah, to to use a gruesome metaphor, if, if I hack a guy's leg off, I can't call myself a humanitarian if I give him a crutch. I think far better is to not do the, the, the violence in the first place. Well, th- thank you so right, much I for taking the that. time. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I know I've been sort of peppering you with questions from Seven Dimensions. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we sign up? Um, no, I, I think not. I mean, just, if, just one, I, I actually, I'd say
1: yes. Um, an important thing for people who are hearing this and um, are sympathetic to this perspective, um, an important area of action for the future would be um, to call on international agencies to drop Haiti's international debt. They've been carrying a heavy load of debt since they freed themselves from slavery um, in 1804. And that has been a huge part of Haiti's poverty throughout its history. And so now if we really want to help out, we can give assistance as we are all doing as a country and as individuals. But we can also take action to um, call on IMF and the World Bank and other strong international players to, to release Haiti from that debt because they've already paid far too much.
0: Yes, and I just for those who don't know much about the history of it, and I, again, I'm not claiming any expertise, but uh, generally the pattern with the third world is the money is lent to the government, it is stolen by the dictators, and then the people are on the hook for it forevermore, uh, the people who did not see the benefits, either in terms of uh, tax reductions or um, or better infrastructure, the people are, who are, are then on the hook for the money that has been stolen by those in power, and that is a very unjust and destructive, uh, so it turns human beings into a kind of tax livestock, which I think is just uh, horrendous, so Uh, I think that is a Mm -hmm. very powerful perspective to have thank you all right right. well thank Thank you very much and uh, I will put forward the links if you send me and thank you so much for taking the time and for writing the articles that you have written to help bring some of this to light
1: yes my pleasure thank you for having me take care okay Bye Bye.